This week on A Year With, June 4th through June 10th, we've read from Goethe's Egmont, Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations, Dana's Travelogue Two Years Before the Mast, Shakespeare's Hamlet, the Quaker John Woolman's Journal, the Psalms of David, and Sophocles' Oedipus Rex. Welcome to the 23rd episode of A Year With, the podcast where we explore great ideas from our common history, good ideas, and bad ones by reading together for a whole year. This year, we're reading together the Harvard Classics, a world literature anthology published starting in 1909. Please return to the introduction episode that I posted the first week of 2022, which may help you understand my project here and uh, to hear an invitation to join me. And with that, we will go ahead and get started with the selections for this week. So as we dig into these readings, you can get a sense of what we might call Dr. Eliot's favorites. Um, certain authors come up time and time again, and Goethe is one of these. Uh, Goethe, as you may remember from previous episodes, lived from uh, 1749 to 1832, and he was a polymath. Um, he dealt in literature, scientific writing, and service as a public official, and he is also one of the most widely recognized writers in German. Um, we've read for, from his account of Faust, uh, and remember we closed last week with Marlowe's Faust rendition, which I contrasted to Goethe's, and his Goethe's Faust is often considered his masterwork, um, and today we have another dramatic selection, a play called Egmont. At the center of this play is a Dutch count named Egmont, um, and during the Eighty Years' War from 1568 to 1648, uh, which is how the Netherlands um, ultimately gained its independence from Spain. And so that's when, when this is set. Um, the Count Egmont stood opposed to the Duke of Alva, called the Iron Duke in the Netherlands because of his authoritarianism. And he's ultimately martyred for his cause by the end of the play. And then this play thus serves as a sort of manifesto for the budding ideas of democracy and national independence developing throughout Europe. All right, now for the 5th of June, we are again back to the economist Adam Smith's The Wealth of Nations. Um, June 5th was Smith's birthday in 1723, um, and Smith was an 18th century Scot, and this book, The Wealth of Nations, was his masterwork and is considered a seminal text of economics describing many of the primary principles of free market economics and wealth building. So in our two previous dips into this book, we've touched on the division of labor and of the development of money, which Smith gave us an excellent account of with only the limitations of the 18th century economy holding him back. In the selection given to us today, I would say we have a more difficult time understanding it, since most of us are so far away from the direct connection between land and sustenance. So very few people directly work in agriculture in our society. Um, Smith writes here of rent, but mostly of the connection between land rent and food productivity, as he says, quote, but land in almost any situation produces a greater quantity of food than what is sufficient to maintain all the labor necessary for bringing it to market in the most liberal way in which that labor is ever maintained. The surplus, too, is always more than sufficient to replace the stock that employed that labor together with its profits. Something, therefore, always remains for a rent to the landlord. 
The most desert moors in Norway and Scotland produce some sort of pasture for cattle, of which the milk and the increase are always more than sufficient, not only to maintain all the labor necessary for tending them, and to pay the ordinary profit to the farmer or owner of the herd or flock, but to afford some small rent to the landlord. The rent increases in proportion to the goodness of the pasture. The same extent of ground not only maintains a greater number of cattle, but as they are brought within a smaller compass, less labor becomes requisite to tend them and to collect their produce. The landlord gains both ways, by the increase of the produce and by the diminution of the labor which must be maintained out of it. End quote. So Smith further notes that the rent of land goes up and down with its fertility, first, and utility, second. Um, so, for instance, land that is productive and closer to a town, so fertility and utility, carries higher rents than land infertile or far away from population centers because it's less useful. And this is one way that good roads and navigable rivers increase the value of land by increasing its utility. And again, we see this today even in land that is not in food production. So what does this mean for us in a place where most of our experiences with rent have nothing to do with food production? Um, we, I think we see a relationship between the cost of rent and production of other kinds, including access to economic opportunity and cultural amenities. Um, we do see one other substantial element in rents that probably beats them all. However, I would say that's scarcity. Um, the way in which we use land here in the U.S. has a tendency to make certain properties more scarce, which makes them more costly. I would guess that scarcity is probably the most significant factor in rents in the urban United States. Um, however, the same principles do still apply, whether the product is food or if the product is other sources of wealth or productivity. How, it makes me wonder, how does our digital economy, though, disrupt the state of affairs? Um, you know, when it comes to uh, people being able to do certain types of productive work from anywhere, without any connection to the value of, of the land that they sit on, um, though we haven't found this great leveling that some people expected in property values. Um, I'm curious to see how this will develop as the future happens. And now for something completely different, we are back um, to Richard Henry Dana's memoir, Two Years Before the Mast, an account of a two-year-long ocean voyage. Um, on June 6, 1836, 186 years ago, Dana lived through the terrifying account that's provided in the selection. So the ship was on the Atlantic at this point at uh, Cape Horn at the southern tip of Tierra del Fuego, which is the uh, forlorn land at the end of Chile, also visited by Darwin on the Beagle that we talked about in episode five. Um, in this forlorn land in the night, while on deck, well, on watch, you know, out on the deck of the ship, it was a peaceful and still night. He, he described it like the grave. He then heard, quote, a loud scream coming from ahead, apparently directly from under the bows. The darkness and complete stillness of the night and the solitude of the ocean gave to the sound a dreadful and almost supernatural effect. I stood perfectly still and my heart beat quick. The sound woke up the rest of the watch who stood looking at one another. What in the name of God is that, said the second mate, end quote. Who would possibly be in this isolated place? Lucky for them, it wasn't a ghost or a specter of any kind. It was just another man below decks waking up from a nightmare. Um, 
the thought of being isolated so far from any civilization is remarkable to me. Um, you know, I think of that for people who live in um, really, really remote locations, like some of the the Pacific islands where there's not any commerce and you know, all the hundred people on the island. Um, how would you keep it together in a situation like that? That's that, that was the condition of life for people on ships like Dana was on. Okay. For the 7th of June, we have a selection again from Shakespeare's Hamlet, which we discussed last in the 12th episode. Um, one thing uh, that I think that we can observe here that illustrates changes in the cultural heritage that you can expect or assume among a moderately educated group of people, um, the, the way that things have changed since 1909 when this collection was first put together. Let's think about Dr. Elliot's introduction to this selection. There's Rosemary. That's for remembrance. Do you know the rest of Ophelia's famous line? Hamlet is the most popular play in the entire world. It has been quoted so often that reading it is like meeting an old friend. Um, I have graduate degrees in English, and I can't continue the line off the top of my head. I think for most Americans, reading Hamlet is not like meeting an old friend, but the weird thing is I don't think we have anything like that now. We're all atomized and divided into a zillion different interests and cultural references with minimal overlap, that I don't know if there's anything like that, except for this like short-lived recognition that like a lot of people have toward viral social media social media memes. Um, so anyway, there's something that's changed in the last hundred years since Dr. Elliot made that observation. Is it for the better or worse? I mean, I think it's for the worse, but you know, I'm aware of arguments otherwise. So anyway, our selection today is from scene five of Act Four. At this point in the play, let's recap the story. Prince Hamlet of Denmark was the rightful heir to the throne when his father, King Hamlet, died. However, the prince's mother, Gertrude, married the king's brother, Claudius, making Claudius king. Prince Hamlet was visited by a ghost that appeared to be the dead king. The ghost provokes Prince Hamlet to take revenge on Claudius, claiming that Claudius killed him and usurped the throne. Prince Hamlet becomes fixed on revenge and begins to feign madness in order to create the chaos necessary to execute his plans. Or is he truly mad? It could be a bit of both. The Lord Chamberlain, a high official in the royal court named Polonius, um, thinks that Hamlet's madness is provoked by Hamlet's love and passion for Polonius's daughter, Ophelia. In actual fact, this appears not to be the case. And uh, a troop of actors comes to town, and Hamlet hatches a plot to expose Claudius, expose Claudius as the murderer of his father. He has the actors perform a scene that mirrors the king's murder, and Claudius's reaction to this scene will prove the guilt he bears for the murder. According to plan, Claudius gets up and leaves. Hamlet goes to kill him, but since Claudius is praying, Hamlet fears uh, that Claudius will go to heaven when he dies, which would not be revenge at all, so he stays his hand. He does not kill him. Prince Hamlet then goes to upbraid his mother, Queen Gertrude, to you know give her a good talking to. Polonius is hiding in the room to eavesdrop. While in the room, Hamlet hears Polonius hiding behind the tapestry, and thinking that it's Claudius hiding in the room, he takes a stab at him, killing him. And, oops, it wasn't Claudius, it was Polonius. Shit. Hamlet is banned to England for this crime. Uh, banished to England for the crime. He's sent with his old friends Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, and Claudius gives secret orders to kill Hamlet when they arrive. 
And so this is where we find ourselves in scene five of act four. Hamlet is banished to England under orders to be executed. Polonius is dead and Ophelia, his daughter, is distraught. Here, uh, Queen Gertrude, uh, Horatio, which is Hamlet's friend, and a gentleman are discussing Ophelia, pitying her, pitying her for a situation, and perhaps they should speak with her. Um, then Ophelia enters. She's obviously stark raving mad at this point. She's speaking in song and babbling nonsense. Claudius enters, hearing this, and diagnoses her condition. Quote, oh, this is the poison of deep grief. It springs all from her father's death. Oh, Gertrude, Gertrude. When sorrows come, they come not single spies, but in battalions. First her father slain, next your son gone, and he most violent author of his own just remove. The people muddied, thick and unwholesome, uh, for in their thoughts and whispers for good Polonius's death. And then, so in quote, then there's a loud sound. They investigate, and it is Laertes. Laertes is the son of Polonius, or the brother of Ophelia, and he is re returned to avenge his father. Save yourself, my lord. The ocean, overpeering of his list, eats not the flats with a more impetuous haste than young Laertes and riotous head overbears your officers. The rabble call him lord, and as the world were now but to begin, antiquity forgot, custom not known, the ratifiers and props of every word they cry, Choose we, Laertes shall be king. Caps, hands, and tongues, applaud it to the clouds. Laertes shall be king. Laertes king. When Laertes enters, the king talks him down, at which point the insane Ophelia enters again, singing nonsense songs, and we get to the quote in Dr. Eliot's intro. Ophelia. There's Rosemary, that's for remembrance. Pray, love, remember. And there's pansies, that's for thoughts. Laertes. A document in madness. Thoughts and remembrance fitted. Ultimately then, though, the king and Laertes agree on a course of action, and the king says, So you shall, and where the offense is, let the great axe fall, I pray you, go with me. All right, let's start off the selection for June 8th, as we move on, with an answer to the question, who is John Woolman? A uh, woman lived from... Uh, 1720 to 1772, and he was an American Quaker who wrote an autobiographical journal that is recognized for its devotional value, I suppose even among those who are not Quakers, um, which is a dissenting Protestant sect focused on cultivating the inner light in a person. Um, Woolman was an American, though the Quaker movement was started in England under George Fox, and the movement was governed by a yearly meeting held in England, and Woolman traveled there. Um, you get a good sense of woman's style reading through this journal, very plain and earnest, which is appropriate for a Quaker, given their values. Um, and he's stricken by the extent to which some of the values of his time period in popular culture jarred with the love and simplicity of the Christian gospel. So here are some examples. Quote, first of seventh month, I have been at quarterly meetings at Sherrington, Northampton, uh, Banbury, and Shipton, and I have had sundry meetings between. My mind hath been bowed under a sense of divine goodness manifested among us. My heart hath been often enlarged in true love, both among ministers and elders and in public meetings. Um, through the Lord's goodness, I believe it hath been a fresh visitation to many, in particular to the youth. Um, we have an admonition not to forget the poor. Um, on inquiry in many places, I find the price of rye about five shillings, wheat eight shillings per bushel, oatmeal twelve shillings for, per bushel, and so on. Um, 
and then listing out all these costs for things that people need to live, he says, oh, may the wealthy consider the poor. Um, Woolman has a very jaundiced eye toward the hurry and acquisitiveness of the world. So, quote, Stagecoaches frequently go upwards of 100 miles in 24 hours, and I have heard friends say, and remember that Quakers are called friends, um, say in several places that it is common for horses to be killed with hard driving, and that many others are driven till they grow, they grow blind. Postboys pursue their business, each one to his stage, all night through the winter. Some boys who ride long stages suffer greatly in winter nights, and at several places I have heard of their being frozen to death. So great is the hurry and the spirit of this world that aiming to do business quickly and to gain wealth, the creation at this day doth loudly groan, end quote. Um, we, we also see Woolman as a steadfast abolitionist, which was common among Quakers at the time. It is very interesting to see how our everyday behaviors can drift so far from our intentions and so far from alignment with our values. Um, Woolman calls this out in a Christian society, and you can't help but feel convicted even today with this incongruity between what we uh, say we believe and what we do. All right. So for the ninth, for June 9th, Dr. Elliot chooses Psalms of King David from the Bible, reminding us to think of them as they were as songs of praise, lament, or supplication. Um, I'll share a familiar one with you today. Uh, so you can sense the effect of the translation which, as much as I can tell, is the American Standard Version, first published in 1901. One of the distinguishing features of this translation was the use of the word Jehovah for the Tetragrammaton, or Yahweh, which you often see rendered as Lord in all caps. Um, so let's read the 23rd Psalm. Jehovah, the psalmist's shepherd, a psalm of David. Jehovah is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He guideth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou hast anointed my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely goodness and loving kindness shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of Jehovah forever. So let's move on to June 10th. Thus far in the series, um, we've read from all of the members of the trio of great Greek tragedians Euripides, Aeschylus, and Sophocles. Today, we're back to Sophocles. Last time we read from uh, Antigone, uh, the last of a trilogy involving Oedipus, the king of Thebes, who was apparently star-crossed. He was famously killed after his father. Uh, he famously killed his father and married his mother. Um, Antigone took, a, took place after the war in Thebes and is built around a dispute among Oedipus's inbred daughters named Ismene and Antigone, who disagreed over the appropriate treatment of the body of their dead brother. Um, here, we're rolling back to the very beginning of the whole mess, to the opening act of Oedipus Rex, or Oedipus the King. Um, this play begins on an uneasy note. Uh, the people of Thebes are at the palace, uh, quote, uplifting hand the suppliant's bows, end quote, and burning incense in honor of the great Oedipus. Um, Oedipus asks the priest why the people are doing this, and the priest responds, For this our city, as thine eyes may see, is sorely tempest-tossed, nor lifts its head from out the surging sea of blood-flecked waves, all smitten in the fruitful blooms of earth, all smitten in the herds that graze the fields, 
Yea, and in timeless births of woman's fruit, and still the God sends forth his darts of fire and lays us low. So a plague has struck, and the priest continues to Oedipus. Come then, noblest ones, come, save our city. Look on us and fear. And yet this land, for all thy former zeal, calls thee its savior. Do not give us cause so to remember this thy reign, as men who, having risen, then fall low again. But save us, save our city. Omens good were then with thee, if thou didst thy work, and now be equal to thyself. Then, uh, kind of Bill Clinton-like, Oedipus says, like, I feel your pain. Uh, Oedipus says, O children, wailing loud, ye tell me not of woes unknown. Too well I know them all, your sorrows and your wants, end quote. He responds that he has sent Creon, a kinsman, to the uh, Phythian home of Phoebus, which refers to the oracle at Delphi, the high priestess at Apollo's temple, who was consulted for important decisions. And fortuitously, Creon is arriving right now. Creon's answer. The plague will end when those who killed Laius, Oedipus's father, and the predecessor king of Oedipus, is driven away. Creon says, driven into exile, blood for blood repay, that guilt of blood is blasting all the state. Oedipus then seeks to call out the killer of Laius to no avail, he, and, and he calls a curse on the man who killed Laius, and he does not realize that he has called a curse on himself as he had unwittingly killed his own father. This begins the whole sordid tragedy that befalls Oedipus and his ill-fated family. Okay, so let's go ahead and end there for the day. I very much hope that your week is better than Oedipus's and that your days are free of plague and murder. Thank you for being here, and I'm looking forward to joining you next week.